You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands upon which we meet today. For me, I'm on the Wajak country in the Noongar Nation and I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. Today's episode is the third of three episodes on the topic of atrial fibrillation. We're talking today about the non-pharmacological management of atrial fibrillation. And our guest once again is Dr. Ben King from Advara Cardiology. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Ben, this is just an area of a lot of advancement for a lot of us who've been in general practice, the topic being non-pharmacological treatments. Let's sort of go back to basics again and talk about what the non-pharmacological treatments for atrial fibrillation are and how they work to manage atrial fibrillation? Well, a lot of the non-pharmacological treatments work to impact those conditions that have upstream effect on atrial fibrillation. Uh, I refer mainly to obesity and and obstructive sleep apnea. And the reason that we focus on that is that there is some interventional data that we briefly mentioned in the last podcast that patients presenting with atrial fibrillation with a view particularly for rhythm control, uh, who manage to lose weight if, if it's there to be lost and manage to treat their sleep apnea, really do better subjectively in their symptoms, but also objectively in their, in their burden of atrial fibrillation. And all of that treatment is non-pharmacological, really. I guess that's not entirely true. There's now some pharmacology for obesity, but, but that's, that has a really good, good impact. I would add to that mix alcohol. So the, uh, the public perception that alcohol causes heart attacks would be incorrect, but it is arrhythmogenic to a degree. And in some unlucky patients in excess can cause heart failure as well. The pattern that we're, that we're very comfortably observing is that it's the blips in alcohol intake that appear to trigger out episodes of AF. So a patient will go out and overindulge and in the small hours of the following morning have the onset of atrial fibrillation. Chronic use is is an issue as well. With regards to non-pharmacological direct impact on on AF, I'm not quite as confident. Exercise, interestingly, can be suppressive of atrial fibrillation. And in fact, there's a little study that showed it can revert some people who presumably have vaguely mediated exercise. But it's also true that there's a little handful of reasons that the elitely trained athlete would have an increased incidence of atrial fibrillation. So again, we're coming to some boring suburban Maimonidean moderation seems to be good for your atrium. Hmm. Yeah, there's lots to consider when juggling someone's lifestyle there, Ben. Let's talk about some of the procedures for managing atrial fibrillation. Let's start with catheter ablation. What is catheter ablation and how is it used to treat atrial fibrillation? Yeah, catheter ablation is using one of three energy techniques to try to exclude the triggers for atrial fibrillation. Now, in the very vast majority of AF patients, the triggers are within the pulmonary veins or their origins. And, and there's a good reason for that to do with the embryology of vein tissue into intermingling with electrically active myocardial, so left atrial tissue. And that, that's in it, the early part of the disease. So the role of the target, and in fact, this has repeatedly been demonstrated that, that really the, the key is to electrically isolate the sleeves of those veins. To get there, we need to get from the right to the left, so puncture the interatrial septum. 
and then we can use a cryo balloon, which is just temp which is uh, freezing around the ostea of those veins. We can use a dot-to-dot -dot radio frequency, which is a number of focal burns until they uh, continuous and make a, a line of block. And uh, more recently, we've got pulse field ablation, which is like little DC current. That's looking at the veins. There are additional techniques in trying to either isolate or ablate either anatomic zones, typically the posterior wall, or specific triggers and signals. The data on, on that is inferior. It comes and goes. Unfortunately, there's a heterogeneity of techniques and a heterogeneity of patients and a heterogeneity of monitoring and whatever else. But there are a fair collection of important studies that really ram home that isolating the pulmonary veins is the key. And we wouldn't, I, I personally wouldn't recommend doing other things to begin with. From our point of view as, as EPs, the, the trick is what about the patient whose veins are isolated and then they're still having atrial fibrillation, in which case you must look somewhere else. And then there are some anatomic or perhaps some electrophysiologic targets that we can adopt and adapt as well. Personally, that's not a first ablation. Great. Okay, let's talk about electrical cardioversion now. What is cardioversion and, and when is it recommended as a treatment option for AF? Well, cardioversion is just a DC current through the entire organ. And what happens is that the entire heart is depolarized. And when it repolarizes, almost always it repolarizes in sinus rhythm. And the main reason is that the sinus node is the fastest spontaneously depolarizing part of the heart. So it will come in first, and so the, and so the electrical activity of the heart follows. The problem is that lasts for one moment. And if we're lucky, factors of patient and medicine and environment, et cetera, et cetera, might give us much longer, uh, but it might resume atrial fibrillation you know, immediately or shortly after. This is perhaps under-recognised, and there are small but I think quite instructive studies that show patients that are discharged, that, that are cardioverted and discharged, no doubt on anticoagulant, potentially on a beta blocker, let's say not so long, only a, a rate-controlling beta blocker, the rates of, instant, of recurrence, even within six months, is really very high. Uh, and therefore, if we're cardioverting to chase sinus rhythm, I think strong consideration should be made chasing the cardioversion with an anti-arrhythmic drug. Yeah. Okay. I know we'll, I'll drift back to ablation. What, what sort of is the prognosis after ablation? And, you know, you just mentioned there with cardioversion, it could be a, a quick uh, and quick thing where it, it converts and they might be back or they might get a while. What, what's, the, what's the same for ablation then? Well, the prognosis of the patient is not strongly determined by the atrial fibrillation. The patient outcome is strongly determined by the atrial fibrillation and Repeatedly, we've seen that ablation is superior to antiarrhythmic drugs in, in maintaining sinus rhythm. Nonetheless, it is a distinctly imperfect technique. Uh, there are recurrences. I, I would make the point that the, talking about recurrence is challenging for a number of reasons. Firstly, the number is higher than we want. We, we tend to quote numbers, even the very best series, 20% or more. And there are a multitude of patient factors that we might mould that number to a worse number. However, adjudicating outcomes is very difficult. One might argue that all you need to speak to is the 
patient perception of palpitations because we're here for symptomatic gain. And of course, if you, they're wearing a monitor every month or they've got an implanted monitor, so on and so forth, the recurrence rates are much higher simply because we have much more com comprehensive monitoring of, of the rhythm. And when we, we've been speaking about recurrence rates, be that 30% or whatever else, it's a very binary evaluation. So there's a blanking period after ablation, which is typically 12 weeks, because the ablation itself can be irritative and cause triggering, cause atrial fibrillation. But that patient might still settle down beautifully afterwards. Um, so after that blanking period, at any stage in the follow-up, if there was a recurrence, certainly in the trial data, um, you'd say, well, unfortunately, that's a failure. However, if that patient was having five hours every three days or every week, and then they have one episode lasting 25 minutes that occurred four months after their ablation and have a great year, they're a notional failure, but I imagine that they're feeling that that was a well-taken decision and that they've had a good outcome. So if we drift away from that to a burden evaluation, which is a, which is a growing thing in arrhythmia, or if we just go to quality of life outcome measurements, which was done by University of Toronto a little while ago, the, it, it actually, the response rate is greater than the very hard numeric recurrence rate. Yeah, that's really helpful, Ben. I think that helps advise, uh, helps us advise patients what to expect after a procedure. So just to sort of go back to base then, how do sort of the pharmacological treatments compare with the non-pharmacological treatments in terms of efficacy and, and side effects and, and longer-term outcomes? It's a, the efficacy is inferior, but, it, but it's simple to turn off it's healthcare cheap, they're generally safe when they're used correctly. And in Australia, we do have some funding considerations in that it's failure of medical therapy that can permit, for lack of a better word, ablation, not necessarily as a choice one or the other. The difference in risk profile is interesting. Clearly, the procedural risk, which generally is the day of, or at least the sort of the period of days and weeks of, is is noted and is much more than the first three weeks of starting medicine, you know, and and they sound different things like you know stroke or or heart injury or so on or so on and so forth. They could be dramatic, but really that's if you if you're free from those complications, hopefully, then that risk is gone, and we shouldn't completely ignore the risk, ongoing risk of taking antiarrhythmics. That is a cumulative issue. So you might have a tiny risk per day, but if you're on it for 20 years, then, then that might amount to something. Amiodarone is different in that regard because of the issue of, of, of cumulative dosing toxicity, whereas both sodalol and flecanol are actually very short-acting, and therefore uh, the risk is evaporated relatively short time after stopping the medicine. And just just to sort of hone in a little bit more on, on one of the things you mentioned, Ben, are there any sort of special considerations for procedures in perhaps the very elderly patients? You know, is there an age that people wouldn't be fit or, or any specific con consideration? Okay. I don't obsess on, on dates of birth. But it's inescapable that the elderly atrium behaves a little bit differently. And I just don't do AF on elderly patients. Truthfully, the elderly atrium behaves differently mechanically as well as electrically. And for, if I could just sort of step away from AF for a minute, there was a, a fairly old British 
trial looking into pacemakers and patients who just got one lead and therefore the AV synchrony is not there really compared to those who had dual chamber. And in the elderly patients, the, the risk of patients feeling unpleasant pacemaker syndrome in that circumstance was really much, much less than, than the middle-aged cohort. And therefore, consideration of simply rate control or a pace and ablate approach that we probably should have discussed earlier on comes forward in our considerations of the elderly patient. So pace and ablate is to, is to implant a pacemaker and then ablate the AV node. Very, the, the AV node ablation is a very minimal procedure. But it does render the patient either largely or completely dependent on the pacemaker. And that's not a decision that you want to take too lightly. A patient who is unlikely to need a generator change in a decade or two generator changes and whose activity profile were in terms of heart rate response will be easy to mimic, i.e. they're not really very athletic, that can be a really good symptomatic gain, that pace in the blade process. But the, the young and the highly active, that's not very attractive. Mm. Ben, that's just been incredibly helpful. You've given us lots of information on both the diagnosis and the treatment options for atrial fibrillation. We really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and really appreciate your time. No worries. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good GP Podcast, a proud member of the Talking Health Tech Podcast Network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions.